you'll turn with me in your Bible to Luke 16, verse 19. It's page 876 in our Pew Bible. And my mother lived to be almost 95 years of age. She actually thought she wanted to live to be 100. But some of you think maybe I'm a, a case. Uh, you don't know anything until you knew my mother. She was a real case. I was in the hospital room right at the very end of her time being in the hospital, and the doctor came in, and he announced to her that there really wasn't anything further that they could do for her, that her kidneys were just not going to work anymore. And he made a couple of the other remarks, and my mom kind of got ready, and as soon as he paused, she started to open her mouth, and he knew what she was going to say, and just looked at her and says, Mrs. Kinzer, you're, you're not a candidate for dialysis. Well, my mother with that just looked up at the doctor and said, well, I guess that's that, huh? And that was it. <laughs> She just accepted that that's where things were for her. Now, it wasn't always like that. My mom grew up in Patterson, New Jersey, and she tells a story, and she told it to me over and over again because it really bothered her. She said she was about 10, and there was a girl in the neighborhood. They were always together playing. And one day they were playing, and this girl began to say she really felt bad. She went on to say that she really was, something was wrong, and she felt really sick. My mother looked at her, and in her own just blunt way said, well, you don't look like you're going to die. The next morning she was dead. Now, my mother told that story to me over and over again because it bothered her. Death bothered her. Now, we don't know about things like this. A friend, well, been working for the same company for 40 years, been working since he was 19. So he's just ready to retire. Remember the storm Thursday night that came through? This man was taking a shower. It was his last. He never got out. He was gone. Christian man. We don't know. Now this passage of scripture that we're going to read is a story, it's a parable, it's a word picture but more than anything else, it's a gift. That's what you need to think. This word picture from Jesus is a gift. It's a gift to you. It's a gift to me. You know, well, let's just read this story. Let's take it all in and see what Jesus wants us to say. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. At his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. 
Moreover, even the dogs came to lick his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abram's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in the water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And beside all this between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that they may warn them, lest they come here also into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now again, this parable, this word picture, is a gift to us from Jesus. We have to come clearly to the understanding this isn't a story that Luke writes. This is a story that Jesus himself created. And he created this story for each of us. It's for us to take in this story. You know, if it was just the first half of the story, we would say, well, we really don't need a parable like that because we see this every day. We see people who have got more than they could possibly ever, ever consume. And on the other hand, we see people and their plight is so desperate, it's just beyond our comprehension that someone could get into that situation. And, well, the unfortunate thing is we, we see that the people that have so much are consumed in what they have and are, well, they don't care. Notice that the man knows Lazarus's name but he doesn't care. He never went out of his way to do anything to mitigate Lazarus' condition. Now, we see that. We're all familiar with that. There's no surprises here. But now what Jesus does is open up to us so that we can see what he sees. That's what we need to take out of this. This is the gift. The gift is to see what Jesus sees and then to begin to take that and process it in our own thoughts and actions. So when you look at this, you see that this whole situation tells us this very clearly. This life, this physical life, and this is the first main point, this physical life is temporary. 
it's going to come to some kind of an end, whether it's like that 10-year-old girl or with somebody with a long illness like my mother or like this friend who died Thursday evening. It's going to end for all of us. We just don't know how and we don't know when. But what we see is that this life that is to come, this is the life that is permanent. This is the life that will be. And so we need to take that into our mind. That's one of the main things that this picture is telling us. Now, there's a warning here. And the warning is intended for the five brothers. So the five brothers would be you and me. So we're to look at this picture and we're to be warned in the exact same way that this man in Hades wanted his brothers warned. That's the intention of this. Now, I think the main thing that you could come from is this, this, this picture is a picture of Lazarus in heaven. So there is in Christianity this ultimate sense that Christianity is a redemptive religion. It's about one who has paid our debt of sin and given us the gift of eternal life, which we call our doctrine of redemption. But as much as Christianity is a redemptive religion, we need to be very clear that it is an ethical religion. And it teaches us how we are to conduct ourselves while we're in the body. And in this sense, as one of the five brothers, we need to consider, do we have some kind of contact by name with people who are very much worse off than we are? And are we in some way actively involved in trying to mitigate their suffering? That would be one of the obvious uh, ways that this is to be applied for us in this passage. Now, when we come to this passage and we see what's happening, we see that Lazarus, who has suffered immensely, has been carried away. You see that? He's carried away. There's angels involved. The angels come and in some way are a part of this transition from this life and into the life which is to come. There are other occasions in the scriptures where people who have died and angels have been present. And so you see this picture here. Now Lazarus is immediately in a situation. And in this situation, it's going to be permanent. He is in Abraham's presence. Abraham is the father of the faithful. And this man is with Abraham which is a picture that this man is to be considered one of Abraham's children as a faithful child. Now, he's got a very simple name. His name's Lazarus. We don't use that much, but it's just a simple name that means God helps. And we see that God has been this help to this man throughout his life, not in the ways that we would like, not in the ways that we would expect, but when this life is over, we can see this man of faith, given this name of faith by Jesus, God is ultimately his help, and he goes into the presence and the comfort of Christ, the covenant or comfort of Abraham. 
He is involved in this which is the world to come and it's a permanent condition for Lazarus. Notice the other man. No comfort, no companionship, no name. That's an odd thing for being as dominant in the story. No compassion, no comfort, no companionship, no name. But of this man who in this world we would totally look over, this man has a name. His name is God Helps. He is in a place of eminence and preeminence, and he's going to be in this situation for all eternity. He is going to enjoy not merely comfort. Now, it's not merely comfort, but it's a banquet of comfort. Now, you say, why a banquet of comfort? You see the position of this man? He is leaning with his head on Abram's breast. Now, you remember another passage of Scripture that's very analogous to this? At the time of the Lord's Supper, Jesus was at table, and the beloved apostle, John the youngest, was leaning back on Jesus' breast. This was the reclining position of an Eastern banquet, and this is the way they ate, laid out, at an angle like this, resting on one elbow and eating from the table. And so this is not merely just comfort in general, but it's a banquet of comfort that this man, Lazarus, is enjoying for all eternity. Again, the picture is a picture for us. It's a gift. It's a gift that we are to receive and we're to look at it. But more than that, Play with it. Play with the picture. You know those kind of things that you can get like an etched sketch that'll have some kind of a permanent picture in the background? And then you can take your little things and design beside it and over it and around it, and you can take this picture and embellish it and make it the kind of picture you want it to be. And if you get dissatisfied, you remember those ones, you could just lift the page and it would disappear and you could start over again. Play with the picture. Put yourself in the picture. Which one of these people do you want to be? Do you want to be Lazarus, I hope? Put yourself in the picture. Now read the scriptures. Do you find another picture that tells us about what it's going to be like in heaven? Well, remember the Psalm 23, what's it going to be like? There's going to be little rivers, green pastures. There's going to be all kinds of beautiful and blessed things. These pictures are all through the Old Testament. Put them in there. Do um, you like to golf? Put a golf course in. you like to fish? Put a boat in there. What do you want? Uh, now, I was asked by one of the men a few moments ago at Sunday school, he said, now, you know, you didn't answer one question. I knew what was coming. He says, you, you didn't say what's going to happen to our pets. And I said to him, you tell your wife that when she gets to heaven, you'll be there. <laughs> That's not really what he was looking for. 
but take the picture and make it look like heaven. That's what it's here for. It's a picture for you to look at. Haven't we already done this already? What does the songwriter say? When we've been there 10,000 years. Now, where did he get? What did he do? He embellished the picture. All the songs that talk about heaven. In Beulah land. None of you younger ones have ever sang in Beulah land. When we all... There's a thousand of these songs. All they are is somebody had this picture in their mind and wrote a song. That's what we need to be doing. What do the scriptures teach us? Now we go to another passage of scripture which I would like us to look at, which is in Luke 23, 39, which is the story of the thief on the cross. Now, what we want to see here is that life with Christ is going to be something that's going to happen immediately. And so when we go from Jesus' pictures, here we go to Jesus' words. Two criminals, they were hanged. One was hurling abuse at Jesus. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. The other answered, and he rebuked this railing thief. He says, do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And indeed, we are suffering justly. We are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying to Jesus, Jesus, in a thousand years or more, when you come into your kingdom, you remember me. Now, this man really had the idea that Jesus was going to come into a kingdom, but he thought that kingdom was way, way, way out there in time. But this thief was saying, when that kingdom comes, will you please remember me? Now, Jesus is always full of gracious surprises. And so we should look at this and say, wow, that's sort of like what I would expect from Jesus. Something that's surprisingly good. So he says to the thief, today you'll be with me in paradise. To that thief he would enjoy this paradise on that very day. Now, when we look at this, these words, what Jesus is saying to him, I'm going to die. Now, when Jesus dies, his body remains on that cross. After a number of hours, that body is taken off the cross. It's wrapped in linen. It's Friday afternoon. His body is placed in the tomb. The tomb is sealed. He's in the tomb for the remainder of Friday, all day Saturday, and the beginning of Sunday. His soul at his death did immediately go into glory, still attached to the divine nature of the second person of the Trinity. Jesus' soul went into heaven. Now, my mother died about 14 years ago, and her soul's been in heaven for 14 years. My father died when I was about 27, which means my father's been in heaven about 40 years. He's been living as a soul without a body and other people as well. But Jesus also lived in the exact self-same way. 
During these three days, his body and soul were separated. Now, the scriptures refer to Jesus as the pioneer of our salvation. And what does a pioneer do? A pioneer blazes the trail, the pioneer goes ahead, the pioneer establishes what is to be, and then other people are able to follow in safety. And so Jesus has already been where your loved ones are, where my loved ones are. He's already been there. And then after this period of three days, then he returned into his body in what we call the bodily resurrection of Christ on Easter Sunday morning. Now that's a different sermon. But Jesus here went into this place and in just a few hours after that, this thief dies, and because he is a believer, he is immediately in the presence of Christ. That's the picture that we see here. It's not something that is a delayed thing, but something that is an immediate thing. In Philippians chapter 1, Paul talks about his desire. Now, his desire, he says, is to depart to depart, and to be with Christ. And he says, that's better. Now, what is this saying? The word to depart is in the Greek what we call an aorist infinitive. And the word to be is what we call a present infinitive. So the idea is that Paul wishes to depart, just like that. It's going to happen just like that. Paul will be here, and then in the next instant, he will have departed, and he will be with the Lord. In other words, this transition takes place immediately. That's the nature of this word as a aorist infinitive. But look on the other hand, the other one. It's back to the first point. It becomes a permanent thing. The, the present infinitive is something that begins but has no ending. Now, you remember in the old days of teaching silly philosophy lessons, you had the, the famous question, to be or not to be? That is the question. Well, to be is what? To be. You are. And so when you make this departure, you're in a permanent position, and you are with Christ, it happens instantly, it abides eternally. That's what Paul is saying here. Now notice our catechism question. That the souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness, and do immediately enter into the presence of God. That's what's happened to our beloved friends and family who have departed here and moved into that life, which is with Christ. Now notice in the third point, life with Christ in heaven is paradise. Now you see this picture, the word picture that you have is Lazarus in Abraham's bosom being comforted. It's a recognizable place. There must have been water there 
the man, the rich man wanted Lazarus to put his finger in the water and to bring that, there's something here, there's a banquet there, a banquet of comfort that's there for, for this man. And so you see this. But in the book of Hebrews, this idea of heaven being a paradise comes out in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4. In there, it's talking about heaven being a heavenly rest. And it's an analogous to the rest that Moses was going to bring all those people who came out of Egypt into this rest. Well, what was the rest that Moses was bringing those people into? And you would say, it's the promised land. That was the land that Moses was bringing the people of, of Israel into. And so we're being promised that we're going to be brought into that promised land. You say, well, how's that? Well, it's just the way you've always sung it, remember? I am bound for the promised land. I am bound for the promised land. That's what we need to think. That's what we're being told. Now, what is the nature of the promised land? What did those people, the 12 spies who went out and come back, what did they tell the people that land was like? It was like a land flowing with milk and honey. It was a place to be desired. If you ever see a picture of that land from the Israeli perspective of the way they look at the land, you'll see two men. They've got this massive pole over their shoulders, one behind the other, and in between them there is a cluster of grapes that's like this big around, and it's dragging the ground. And they're carrying these grapes back to show Moses and the people what the promised land looks like. What is it? It's a paradise. What is it? It's a place of glory. In 2 Corinthians 12, verse 1 through 2, 2 through 4, Paul tells us that at some point in time, 14 years prior, he was caught up into the third heaven into the paradise of God, and he saw these things, and he writes about them there. Now, the Corinthian letter precedes the Philippian letter. So Paul, having seen this, is able then to write to the Philippians, I desire to depart and to be with Christ. Then he adds this, which is very much better. Very much better than what? Very much better than this life. That's what, what Paul is telling these, these people in Corinth and the, what he's telling these people in Philippi. Well, again, what is it? Now, I'm trying to give you information for you to paint your own picture. That's really what I'm trying to do. I really would like you to, in your mind's eye, begin to, to process this. What is this that we're talking about? Well, it's like Eden without sin. It's like returning to the Garden of Eden. It's returning to a place of all of God's creative perfections, and it's the place where you and I will be with Christ for all eternity. Now, moving, we want to see quickly 
that life with Christ is going to be recognizable. That's very important for you to see that. Do you see that Lazarus is named in this word picture a number of times after he goes into this place called Abraham's bosom? The rich man can recognize Lazarus. Abraham recognizes Lazarus. Lazarus is with Abraham. The two of them are recognizable. You're going to be able to recognize one another in heaven. You will be with your loved ones in much the same way you were with your loved ones, with the exception of sin. And so you'll be there. You see, with the thief, the thief isn't going to just be in heaven. What does it say? You will be with me. Now, the preeminent thing about being in heaven is to be with the Lord. That's what Paul is saying, to depart and be with Christ. So the idea of what makes heaven heaven for us is that Christ is there and that we are with him there in heaven. Now, there's another passage when we look in Luke 9, 28, we see the transfiguration of Jesus and in that transfiguration, it's a picture of the future brought into the present. And in that picture, and again, we need to think of a historical event just as much as we are here today as a historical event. So Moses and Elijah appeared to Jesus. And in the appearance to Jesus, they're giving Jesus encouragement concerning his departure. Peter, James, and John are there. That's what we're told. Now, why are we told Peter, James, and John were there? Well, in the scripture, every fact is to be verified on the basis of two or three witnesses. So this event is witnessed by these three men and referred to later on, especially by Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1. So in this situation, Moses knows Jesus, Jesus knows Moses. Moses knows Elijah, Elijah knows Jesus, Elijah knows Moses. Peter, James, and John are able to say that's Moses and Elijah with Jesus. We will be recognizable to one another in this heavenly existence that the scriptures portray to us. So add to your picture the people you know and hope that will be there. I would even go so far as to say put some people that you don't think right now should be there, but you're going to work on making sure that they get there. You need to think about your own life of who you would like to see in that heaven that right now are not professing faith in Christ and call them to Christ. Life with Christ in heaven also is shown to be current with God's working plans. When Moses and Elijah come to be with Jesus on the mountain, you don't get a sense that they are stuck in the long-distance past of the time in which they died. It would give the appearance, reading the narrative of this text, that Moses and Elijah are totally current and up-to-date with the things that revolve around God's salvation. 
Now, I'm not saying that they in heaven know what we're doing on earth. That would make me shudder. But the idea that, that the people that are in heaven know what God's plans are, we see pictures of that in the book of Revelation, but you see it very clearly here. In Acts, you see Stephen standing, or Stephen sees Jesus standing. In Acts, you see Saul of Tarsus confronted by this Jesus. And when we see this, back to this transfiguration, when Moses and Elijah are talking to Jesus, the technical word about what they're doing in encouraging him about his departure, that word is translated and we get the word departure, but the literal Greek word means his exodus. So the idea is that Jesus is about to exodus this earth in order to enter into heaven. And the idea, again, carries with it somebody who is a pioneer, someone who is a trailblazer, and someone who is going ahead and going to take all those who are following him into the place to where he is making his exodus. When we look at this, we see that life with Christ is a holy existence, and we see that life with Christ is a heavenly rest. When we get there, we will rest from all of our works just as God rests from all of his works in his creation and his redemption. We are calling that the church triumphant. Today we are in what is called the church militant. And in the church militant, we need to be about the evangelization of our friends, our family, our neighbors, and our co-workers. We need to be about telling people about what God and Christ has done for us. Now, in closing, we're told in the book of Colossians, chapter 3, verse 3 and 4, that our life is hidden with Christ and God. That's the way it is now for us. That's the way it is now for our beloved that are in heaven. But then it goes on to say, and it closes with this, but when Christ, who is our life, is revealed in the resurrection, then you'll be revealed with him in glory. And that being revealed with him in glory is going to be revealed with him in a glorified body of the kind of body that he has, a body that is fit for eternity, a body that is fit to live a sinless existence, a body that is fit for heavenly purposes. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then all of this that is for us without our body will be consummated and we will be with the Lord in our body forever. We see the scriptures in a couple of the passages that end in dealing with these themes, and it says this, comfort one another with these things. That's what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians. Comfort 
one another with these things. Talk about these things. Tear them apart. Look into them. Think about them. You have friends who have lost their loved ones and they're absolutely bereft. You've got a great message for them. What does it mean to depart? It means to be with Christ. Let's pray. Now we thank you, our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for so great a salvation that you have provided us in Christ for all eternity. Make us sensible to who we are and the benefits that we possess that cannot be taken away from us because Christ has triumphed over all things. And so we give you thanks, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.